I've talked enough horror on this podcast for a lifetime. This season, I want to talk about love. A question I keep coming back to, one that friends have asked me, in fact, is why I love this city so much. What does it mean to love a place? Especially when that place keeps trying to kill you in the way that London does. The worst hurt I've ever felt came from this city, both emotional and physical. The part of me that drowned beneath Fleet Street in 2019 is still aching to be released. And yet, the idea of leaving is worse than terrifying. It's abhorrent. There's nowhere else I could fit. That sounds unhealthy, though, like I'm stuck in the belly of something I can't escape. It's not quite it. Love, to me, is finding a mystery that I can't unravel, a fascination that never ends. I believe that the greatest, most immeasurable distance in the universe is the distance between the perception of two distinct people. The foot of empty air which separates your universe from that of the person opposite. To me, love is about seeing that uncrossable gap, the infinite void between your eyes, and resolving to try to cross it regardless. It's straining your fingertips to touch another's soul, knowing that you can't, but trying anyway. This episode is about the ways in which that infinity can drag you into it, and how love can bloom in that impossible chasm. I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. closer to my neighbours since the pandemic hit. Well, some of them anyways. I wrote a note offering to help the old lady who lives on the top floor take her recycling downstairs so she didn't have to throw it out the window every Tuesday, and she wrote a very curt letter back telling me to mind my own business. Not all my attempts have been rebuffed quite so hard though. There's a couple who live upstairs who I started offering to buy groceries for last March, and who I've been gradually developing a really positive relationship with, Peter and Anya. They're both in their late 80s, and a little infirm, although Anya likes to walk to a nearby park once a week to feed the ducks, while Peter tends to stay home and read historical fiction. They've both got the same implacable accent that I've never quite been able to pinpoint, Eastern European, perhaps Russian, although it tends to roam around a little, for reasons that will become clear. At first, our relationship was very straightforward. I put up a note in the hallway to see if anyone needed help with their groceries, and they wrote a nice note back thanking me and asking me if I'd be able to grab them some milk twice a week. I've been working from home for a while now, so I was happy to do it. After a month or so of this routine, we started talking a little more. I would hear one of them playing the piano occasionally, falteringly, through the ceiling of my flat. Most often the Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, a song which luckily lends itself quite well to being played a little unevenly on an old Casio keyboard. I left a note asking them about it, and Peter happily wrote back to say that he'd been trying to remember how to play it. 
I offered to get a copy of the sheet music online and printed one for him the next time I dropped off the milk, and he was ecstatic. What was strange, though, was that he didn't remember the name of the song at all when I asked him. I'm showing my ass here, but I didn't immediately identify Tchaikovsky when I heard it. Obviously, I recognised the song, but not the name or the composer off the top of my head. So I wrote him asking what it was, and he replied saying he had no idea. He was playing from Muscle Memory Alone, a half-remembered song which had been drilled into him at some point in the past. When I gave him the sheet music, it took him a while to relearn how to read it. Once he got the hang again though, he started writing me notes asking for other songs, and before too long I'd printed off a collection of older pieces, Rachmaninoff, Chopin, Prokofiev, which I could hear him happily playing upstairs. The next time I wrote to him, I asked where he'd learned to play like that. His note back was a little cryptic to say the least. Dear James, thank you for the sheet music. I enjoy playing very much. I do not know where I learned. It is okay though, I am having fun. Please could you buy eggs, milk, flour and sugar on Tuesday. I would like to bake a cake to celebrate Anya's birthday. Regards, Peter. I'll skip forward in time a little here. Another month or so went past like this, me bringing them supplies and occasional bits of sheet music, them writing short notes back. I was a little caught up on the fact that Peter didn't know where he'd learned piano, but I sort of assumed it was just a strange writing quirk. Perhaps he didn't know how to translate where he'd learned? I'd not actually spoken to them face to face yet, and I'd only faintly heard their voices through the roof, so it was feasible that their English wasn't that great. In late October, however, I'd managed to get a hold of a Covid test after a scare which confirmed I was negative for the virus and I decided to take the opportunity to go up and knock on the door to see them in person. I wrote to them in advance to make sure they were okay with it, and they said it was fine, so I was looking forward to the opportunity to finally greet the couple who I'd been exchanging letters with for the past six months. They were very sweet about it, inviting me in for a cup of tea and a chat. Their flat has basically the same layout as mine, but They've managed to make it much more homely and inviting than my weak interior decorating skills have been able to. Potted plants spill from every spare surface which isn't filled with books, and the walls are covered with beautiful abstract paintings in the Russian constructivist style. Anya, it turns out, spends most of her time either painting or trading plant clippings with neighbours at local farmers markets or meetup groups. I felt a little bad that I'd completely failed to help with her hobby, which she'd been cut off from since the pandemic hit, and resolved to bring her some clippings as soon as I got the chance. I was a little surprised at how good their English was too, which immediately discounted my theory that his comment about not knowing where he learned piano was a side effect of mistranslation. It was accented for sure, but thoroughly fluent, although the bookshelves were full of works in a whole variety of different languages. I counted English, Russian, German, and Mandarin, plus a couple of others which I didn't immediately recognise. Naturally, I asked where they'd learned, to which Peter gave a wry smile, and then changed the subject. I'd only intended to swing by to say hello for a few minutes, but I ended up staying for over three hours. 
Peter walked me through his book collection, mostly histories from a wide variety of academic authors, with a measure of historical fiction thrown in for spice, and playing me a bunch of songs on his little keyboard, while Anya quietly moved around the flat with a sort of ethereal grace I can't fully describe. Despite being in her late 80s, she still moved like a dancer, sweeping from room to room with this measured precision as she showed off her plant collection, her excitement at sharing a hobby shining through this composed exterior. I was really struck by the affection they had for each other, how it shone through every interaction they had, and the fabric of the flat itself. Anya would gently touch Peter's arm when he got a little too animated about something, affectionately steadying him, and Peter would beam at her when she talked about her paintings. The love between them cast a warm glow over their little apartment, embedded in every smile and shared glance like an open secret. It was a pleasure to be around them, to be let into their world, even for a short while. The other thing that stood out was something I didn't realise until I got back downstairs afterwards, so wrapped up was I in their little world. They'd show me bookshelves and paintings and plants and bits of homemade furniture, another of Anya's hobbies, but nowhere in the flat were there any photographs. There was no sign of any family or pictures from when they were younger, nor of what they did before they retired. I kicked myself for not asking, but the truth is they had so much interesting stuff to share, it hadn't even occurred to me to pry into their pasts. I'd been speaking with them for a couple of hours while they told me about their art, their interests, but I only realised afterwards that it was all very present tense. I had no idea where Anya learned to paint, or where Peter had learned Mandarin, or what brought them to London. I resolved to ask the next time I was over. Unfortunately, the next time I saw Peter in person, he was being wheeled out to an ambulance. It had been three weeks since I went to visit, and things had largely continued as usual. I'd done a couple of shopping runs, and we'd exchanged notes once or twice, with me thanking them effusively for inviting me in and being such good hosts. Once I'd gone out, though, I knew it was too risky to see them face to face again, at least until I could get my hands on a Covid test. I figured I'd get to see them closer to Christmas, since they were still forecasting things might be better by then. The ambulance lights danced through the windows of my basement flat at 11pm on a Sunday night, distracting me from whatever mindless reality TV I was watching, and I got up to go see what was going on. The block of flats I live in was once owned by the council, so there's a mix of older folks living in it who bought their homes years ago, and buy-to-let places like mine, which have changed hands a dozen times since being sold to their original owners in the 80s so it wasn't like I could immediately assume anything just from an ambulance pulling up outside. When I saw them rolling Peter out on a gurney, I pulled on my shoes and mask and ran up the stairs to meet them. Anya was speaking to the paramedic as they loaded him into the back, accepting with a small nod the driver telling her that she wouldn't be able to ride with Peter, nor likely visit him in the hospital due to the lockdown. Her demeanour was perfectly calm and still, in a way that was more upsetting than if she'd been sobbing. It was the stillness of someone exercising absolute control of themselves in the middle of a nightmare, muscles clenched solid and aching against the injustice of the world.
When the ambulance left, she sat on the steps outside and spoke to me for a while, never losing a second of her composure. She told me that they'd been quietly reading when Peter began exhibiting signs of a stroke, numbness along one side of the body, confusion, inability to stand or walk. She called an ambulance and they were there within minutes. When I said that was lucky for them, she let out a wry laugh and said that luck had nothing to do with it. That struck me as a little strange at the time, but looking back, the ambulance didn't look standard. It wasn't decked out in NHS livery, for one thing, instead painted dull grey, and although it had the standard blue lights on the top, it was shaped more like one of those police or immigration enforcement vans you sometimes see harassing people around town. The windows were blacked out, which is standard for ambulances, but when I glimpsed in the back I could see it was fitted with both medical equipment and a custody cage, more like a counter-protest vehicle than a standard ambulance. It was all a little fishy. Anya noticed I'd gone quiet. She was studying my face, and needless to say, I've never been great at poker. I opened my mouth to ask a question, and she cut me off. We don't know. And then she started talking, and didn't stop for over an hour. Year is 1993. Peter and Anya wake from restful sleep in bed next to each other in a small flat in London. The walls are bare, the apartment only minimally decorated. No flowers, no paintings, bookshelves empty. On the bedside table lie the following items. Two clean, fresh British passports bearing their full names. A debit card for a joint bank account. A set of keys for a locked deposit box. A pair of letters written on home office stationery. The letters were identical, apart from the names. They read as follows. I, Anya, the name was redacted. Hereby declare I am submitting to this procedure of my own free will. I will make no attempt to contact any of my former associates, nor will I leave the country for any reason for the remainder of my life. I accept the terms of my contract release, and in return I will be provided with a place to live indefinitely and a stipend of £487.23 a month subject to inflationary increases, until the end of my life. A signature she didn't recognise was on the bottom, but as her hands traced the familiar movement of the pen strokes, she realised it was her own. This is Anya's earliest memory. She and Peter spent the first few weeks in a daze, walking slowly around the flat, eating the ready meals which had been left in the fridge for them. Their heads had been shaved, and checking over each other, they both found deep incisions in the left side of their skulls, apparently only recently healed. They moved on autopilot, 
birds fresh from the nest, surprised by the flawless familiarity of their actions. Anya told me that she saw Peter brace himself against the wall as he got into and out of the shower, and when she asked why, he couldn't answer. It was only when he tried to not do it that he discovered that he had a slight twinge in his back that he somehow knew, automatically, to account for. It occurred to them to call for a doctor on the third day, using the grimy handphone in the living room and a damp copy of the yellow pages they found on the front step. When they did so, they noticed a click before the line connected. Anya remembers Dully saying, Ah, we're being monitored, without fully understanding where that knowledge came from. The local GP surgery said it wouldn't be able to get them an appointment that week, so they were a little surprised when a doctor came by the flat within the hour, thoroughly checked them over, paying particular attention to the incisions on their skulls, and gave them a clean bill of health. He left a card with a direct number for any medical issues, and advised them to use that one in future. The card did not have a name on it. They both knew, instinctively, not to ask. They discovered, in time, a wide variety of skills that rose to the surface when prompted. Both were able to read and speak several languages, although they had no memory of learning them. Anya had a talent for drawing, particularly portraiture, which she only realised when she found herself idly doodling on a pad of paper they'd been given as a free gift by an insurance salesman, and was surprised to realise she'd sketched an almost perfect likeness of Peter's face. Peter, of course, could play piano, albeit falteringly. He never got too much better at that one, and would joke sometimes that whatever he used to do, he certainly wasn't a musician. There was one further thing that they knew, the muscle memory of it aching deep within them from the first moment they woke up in that apartment. They knew that they only had each other to rely on. And, more than that, they knew, beyond the level of reason, that they were in love with each other. The first few years were tough, to say the least. Anya said it was like coming out of prison with no one there to greet you, and then turning around to discover the prison had disappeared behind you. They had no friends and no family, and although the money was pretty reasonable for the time, especially tax and rent-free, it wasn't enough to build a whole new life from scratch. They struggled to meet people, and Peter developed a profound agoraphobia which prevented him from going outside for months at a time. He'd hole up indoors, watching TV, and picking at the open wound of his fractured memory. Anya tried to apply for a few jobs, partly for the money and partly just to keep busy, but as a 50-something with no verifiable references, job history, or education, she didn't get very far. She gave up on that idea after being called for an interview, and then receiving a phone call from the same person ten minutes later, now much more frightened sounding, saying they were no longer considering her for the post, and to please never contact them again. Clearly, employment violated the terms of their parole. The breakthrough came when she managed to get them each a library card. 
Peter started reading vociferously and discovered his talent for languages at first due to a mislabeled copy of Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground in its original Russian, which both he and Anya were surprised to be able to read fluently. Peter joined a book club and was able to develop a small group of friends while still staying arm's length enough to avoid questions about their background. They both became adept at avoiding questions and changing the subject when asked about their pasts, and before long, the questions started to recede into the rearview of their lives. There were still issues from time to time, of course. Peter's library card was briefly cancelled after he took out too many James Bond books at once due, they assumed, to a flag on his account against potentially sensitive subjects. It was only reinstated after he picked up their phone, waited for the click, and complained vociferously into the open line, until a new card came through the letterbox later that day. Anya got into hot water on one occasion when her interest in DIY led her to explore clock repair. She came home one day to find her workbench had been meticulously emptied out to remove a single radio component from an alarm clock she was working on, which she later discovered could potentially be reverse engineered to allow for broadcasting. Needless to say, they never bothered to invest in a computer. Through all this, Anya and Peter never lost that love for one another. If anything, it grew stronger as the years went by. They rarely argued, even when they disagreed, and whatever compatibility had led them to that flat in London in the first place persisted long after. Anya was composed, Peter stubborn. Anya was good at meeting new people, but Peter was better at calling them back. They kept a loose circle of acquaintances, in the way you can in the city. I know everyone who works at my local Tesco, and they know me, even if we only share a couple of words a week. Community and anonymity aren't a contradiction, nor a love and loss. It was 1am by the time Anya finished telling me all this. I hadn't realised, but I was freezing cold sat under the pale orange glare of a streetlight, completely deaf to the steady stream of cars speeding past a few metres away. I realised Anya was shivering slightly too. After a cup of tea, but she declined, although she didn't seem to want to go inside yet either. Naturally, I had some questions. Had they ever looked into their lives prior to 1993? Anya said it hadn't really interested her. She had some theories, based on the home office letter and the conditions of their release, but she had to assume that they got off lightly. An awful lot of records were destroyed as the Cold War wound down, and an awful lot of people disappeared. It seemed to her that survival, a comfortable stipend, and round-the-clock medical care was a good deal. I've got to be honest, this made a lot of sense to me. I'm a curious sort, but... I'm also a big believer in knowing when to cut your losses. Given the surveillance they were under, and the life they'd managed to build despite that, they were keenly aware that they had something to lose. She told me that Peter kept a box of relevant files under the bed, to be added to with any information he stumbled across, but that they never went looking for answers after the first year. The same chemical element that kept them in love after the memory loss also governs our sense of dread, and their lives were haunted by that dread to such an extent that they avoided tonguing the cavity as much as possible. 
even beyond the threat of losing one another, what if they found something horrible in their pasts? Something unforgivable? To receive such a lush retirement from the British government implied that they must have rendered some truly exceptional service, and it doesn't take much knowledge about British history to imagine what sort of atrocities that might entail. As much as they were able to, they chose to leave it behind. And then I asked the question that was burning in the back of my mind, that came out so abruptly I didn't realise how rude it was until I'd already said it. Didn't it occur to you that maybe the person who removed your memories could have also forced you to love each other? And you smiled gently. Of course it did. But why should that make it any less real? When you reach a certain point in your life, the idea of authenticity, of real, organic, in-your-bones feeling, begins to melt away. Love has a physical effect for sure, but it also has an element of choice. We choose to create love each day, in little acts of tribute and cooperation. She told me that, as far as she's concerned, love is a verb, not a noun. Then she smiled, wistfully, gathered herself up, and went back inside for the night, leaving me alone in the washed-out glare of the quiet city. For the next week, I tried my best to keep an eye on Anya, alone in that flat for the first time in her life. In the interests of caution, and with an awareness of my own lack of skill in the kitchen, I picked her up a dozen ready meals rather than offering to cook her a casserole. I know that Peter had done most of the cooking, and I think she appreciated it. We communicated by handwritten notes back and forth, and she kept me up to date on Peter's progress. Obviously, she could have called me at any point, but she preferred to compose letters. Despite the contents mostly being grocery lists and health updates, she liked that they were harder to intercept. Peter was doing well, she said, although the food was awful. I, unthinkingly, offered to order him takeout until she reminded me that his location was still uncertain. He definitely wasn't in the local hospital, though, that much is for sure. He'd been allowed to speak to her on the phone after a little back and forth with his handlers. His speech was a little slurred, but he seemed happy. They were putting him in for brain surgery at the end of the week, although Anya darkly implied it was probably more for their protection than for his. All we could do was sit and wait, and hope. Delving through the neurons of the human mind, it's easy to reduce all emotion to chemical impulses and electrical currents, thrown together into the maelstrom of consciousness and filtered through our failing bodies into action. That's always seemed a little too tidy for me, though, alighting the spiritual the divine, the supernatural. I can't believe in thinking if I don't also believe in ghosts. I can't trust myself or my own feelings without also, by necessity, trusting in Bigfoot. The magical realism involved in building love together, of creating a home day by careful day, 
runs counter to the steely logic of industrial capitalism, despite the latter's fetishization of nuclear families and worker bee community. It's a colossal act of solidarity, of accepting difference, of seeing the monstrous horror of another person's complete being, and moving closer. It's teamwork, language games, and putting in the effort. It's the type of thing which we can extrapolate outwards, to learn to love and build, even in the aftermath of disaster. And, to crib a phrase from Emily Dickinson, sometimes love can have an element of blank. There are schools of thought, often associated with Jewish literary theory, which hold that the greatest form of sacrilege is to presume you're able to know another person's mind as God does. Is there not something sacred in the blank, in the forgotten, in the unknowable? These gaps in memory and experience are where the spirit lives, and fascinated respect for them is fertile ground for love to bloom from. I think of the ones I love, of listening to them recount experiences I wasn't there for, of how that insight into their perspective makes me love them all the more. I think of people I've lost, and how one of the things I miss is hearing them tell the same story again and again, knowing that they're sharing something which can never truly be shared, their perspective. I'd do anything to hear those I miss most of all tell me something I already know. Love exists in the gaps between us, in the blank. Perhaps, over the years, you get better at accepting that. Peter returned home two weeks later. His head was shaved and he looked thin, frail, but still much better than expected, all things considered. The ambulance driver clearly felt a little silly unlocking the custody cage at the back just to release a man who was having trouble walking, but Peter still climbed out under his own steam. Anya and I were waiting outside to meet him, as were a few others from the community. Some book club members, the same upstairs neighbour who told me to mind my business when I offered to help with their recycling. He was heavy on his feet, and I had to fight the urge to run over and help him. Without a lot of fanfare, he thanked us for coming to see him, and then Anya led him up the steps and back into their flat. I tried to have a word with the paramedic about where he'd come from, but she didn't really know anything. She was working on a license through one of the many Byzantine private contracts the NHS had been forced to adopt under the Tories. Most days, she turns up at work without even knowing what vehicle they're going to be driving, let alone who's dispatching them. At first, she wouldn't reveal the location she'd picked him up from due to concerns about patient confidentiality, but after a little pushing, she revealed that she hadn't actually picked him up in the first place. She'd been directed to a side street a few roads away, where she'd been told to switch from her regular ambulance into this one, with Peter already inside. She had no idea who was footing the bill for this job, and although she was interested, there was little chance she'd ever find out. I suppose that's the difference between now and Peter and Anya's day. It used to be that official secrecy relied on the confidentiality of those involved, but nowadays we're all tangled in webs of obfuscation, never quite sure where the next paycheck is coming from. Labour is organised according to intentionally alienating systems of control, 
endlessly knotted tributaries of capital, rather than one coherent river. Imperial wars are conducted through a series of convoluted subcontractors, all mercenaries and militias, who then become the convenient enemies the next time we need an excuse to invade. The modern-day equivalents of Peter and Anya would never need to forget, because they wouldn't know who they were working for in the first place. In 2010, there was a big release of surviving colonial and Cold War era documents under the Freedom of Information Act. It was around the same time that WikiLeaks were operating, before that all went to hell, and public interest in government secrets was at a temporary high. Peter lent me his folder of information he'd come across about their past after his return from the hospital. And amongst the files was a letter from the Home Office, dated to November of 2010. It was an invitation to visit with a senior member of staff at the MI6 building near Vauxhall Bridge to discuss the details of their case. The wording was predictably vague, all government speak about working in the interests of national security, but with a proviso. If they accepted the offer, it may impact the terms of their retirement, since it pertained to confidential information of consequence to the operation of the British state. In the next note I wrote to Peter, I asked if he'd gone to this meeting, if he was curious about their past after all those years. His response was about as straightforward as you might expect. He said he'd never responded to their letter. They were happy. They were in love. And they decided, together, that given the choice, they'd rather not know. episode of Subterraneans, Luddites, Meat Processing, and Freedom on the River Lee. I've been James Thompson. You can reach me at Subtopod on Twitter or by email through subtopod at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe and rate on the Apple Podcasts app since it really helps getting my name out there. You can also subscribe on Patreon where you can get access to transcripts, bonus episodes, and behind-the-scenes info from £5 a month. That's patreon.com forward slash subtopod. Special thanks to my £10 and above subscribers, Hiran and Alex, who said, It's not now or never. Wait ten years, we'll be together. I said, Better late than never. Just don't make me wait forever. Thanks for listening. <laughs>